Second, notice how he assesses this church. Now, it makes sense that Christ would want a people or a church that is hot, right? Everybody wants to be on fire for the Lord. Don't you want to go to a church and be friends with Christians that are on fire for the Lord? Meaning, yes, I do have a zeal for God. I do want to know Him. I do want to live for Him. And I want Christ to be known among the nations. That's a zeal. You, you, God gives us this will and we adopt that as our plan and mission in life. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus would want a people or church to be hot and on fire for the Lord. But where it gets a little fuzzy is when he says, well, you're just lukewarm. And if we keep in this spiritual metaphor of a church that's hot is on fire for the Lord, then a church that's cold wants absolutely nothing to do with them, spiritually speaking. So why would Jesus say, I'd rather you be a church that has wants nothing to do with me, where maybe there's just death, there's coldness, it's ice, there's no response, or a church that can't get enough of me. How does that make sense? Because isn't lukewarm, if you're going to use that metaphor, isn't it in the middle? I mean, at least you're warming up in the right direction. So what are we to do with this? It would seem like he would want someone to Uh, lukewarm would be better than somebody ice cold. Or maybe a better question would be, why does he even use that metaphor to begin with? Well, as I mentioned, Laodicea is in the Lycus Valley. And they had a lot of things going for them. It was a fertile valley. They had great pasture land, great produce, and so forth. But one of the things that they did not have going for them was water supply. They struggled with their water supply. So of the three cities in this valley, Heropolis and Colossae and um, Laodicea, Heropolis was known for their water supply in that they had hot springs. I don't know if you've ever been to a hot springs. I actually, we, we went to Colorado years ago, hot springs to a ski resort, and they had hot springs, and we got in the hot springs. Hot springs are known for a lot of things. Oh, hot springs are great till you have to get out. And you're in Colorado at a ski resort. And you've got to run to your locker and get dried and get dressed. Then it's not so therapeutic. But while you're in there, it's wonderful. And there are, there's, there's, there's healing properties, um, relaxing properties to hot springs. So they were known for that. It, it, was, uh, it had a value there. The water source had a value there. And, The Colossae had the only cold water source, the good drinking water in this valley. They were known for that. Now, Laodicea didn't have either. They struggled with their water supply. So, what the Romans would do is they would pipe it in, just like we would do. They, They would pipe it in from another source, So that this town, this city had the water they needed for, I guess, for um, washing purposes. But also, I mean, everybody has to have water to drink, right? So they would pipe it in. Now, what I don't know is uh, why they had to pipe into hot water, but they piped into a hot spring or a source of hot water. I don't know if it was Heropolis. I I couldn't find any of this in my research. All I know is I'm just going to assume that the 
the, the only source that was close enough to pipe water in was a hot spring of some kind. And so that's what they did. And so it started out hot, and as it went through the pipe, by the time it got to this city, it was lukewarm. And not only lukewarm, but it was filled with uh, like calcium, calcium carbonate and minerals. If you've ever had a water that's filled with a lot of minerals, it's just nasty tasting. So that's the idea here. That this water piped in, it's lukewarm, it's filled with chemicals, and it is nasty. And people that would drink it would often spit it out of their mouth. So, I'm not making this up. It was known throughout the Roman Empire to have the nastiest water in, in the whole Roman Empire. And we know this because uh, Cicero comment, commented on this that it was the foulest water in the entire Roman Empire. And he would know he traveled it, but a lot of other people would know because Laodicea, one of the reasons they were rich, was because they were in an important travel route. You kind of had to go through them, depending on where you were coming from or going to. And so a lot of people traveled through there, and they had that reputation for the terrible, disgusting water. I think this helps us to understand Jesus' heart in this metaphor. So he's not teaching that to be ice cold towards him is better than being lukewarm here. The idea, like the water, is the spiritual condition of their hearts. In that they're, they're just not useful for anything. You know, if you, if you have the hot springs, they're useful for therapeutic reasons. Yeah, you can go there and you can relax. Or... A cold glass of water satisfies thirst. That's useful to me. When I'm thirsty, I want something to drink. But when you go here and you're thirsty and you want to be refreshed and you get this nasty, chemical-tasting warm water, you just spit it out of your mouth. It doesn't do the job. It's not useful. It's good for nothing there. So you're hoping to get something out of it and all you get is uh, almost sick taste. So the idea is that this church has become useless to the Lord. Their lack of zeal. They don't have anything going for it as far as Christ is concerned. It's as revolting to Him. The church is as revolting to Jesus as the water was revolting to Cicero. So in other words... These are strong words, and your spiritual condition is disgusting. Like, I can't get anything out of it. All I can do is spit you out of my mouth. Now, to take it a a bit further, we we can work with hot and cold. Um, We understand being on fire for the Lord. We also understand maybe the spiritual condition of coldness. But there's also a sense in which coldness, in some cases, is easier, a spiritual coldness is easier to work with and make progress than just a blah lukewarmness. And I'll give you an application to this um, from Timothy Keller, and I'm going to use this because he actually pastored in um, Hopewell, Virginia. Timothy Keller pastored there. For uh, when he was first starting his ministry. And here's what he had to say with his experience at church in Hopewell. 
He says, I remember when Kathy and I first moved to Virginia and we tried to start to reach out to the youth in the neighborhood. There were really two kinds of youth in our neighborhood in that little town in Virginia. The first were kids who just thought Christianity was stupid. They thought it wasn't true. They thought it was a crock. They were cold. Then you had kids who had been raised in various churches all their lives. Now, who would you rather minister to? What kind of teenager would you rather reach out to if you were trying to bring teenagers into connection with Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done? I'll tell you. From his experience, it's the ones who didn't believe at all. You could talk with them. You could level with them. You could speak with them. If they actually came to believe there was a zeal there, there was an intimacy, there was wonder, there was passion, there was joy. But when you talk to the kids who were raised in the churches for so long, now if you question their Christian beliefs, they'd be very offended. If you question their behavior, they would be very offended. And they said, I'm following all the rules. And yet... In the Bible studies, rather than actually attending to what you were talking about, they would snicker and tell jokes and laugh. They would take the whole thing lightly, and it was clear that they were blind to the beauty and wonder of the gospel. So there's, the, there's, a, there's a danger in spirituality to getting to this point where we are lukewarm. Where the wonder of the gospel and the grace of God doesn't even touch us or tickle us or inspire us in any way, doesn't have an effect. The wonderful, beautiful, divine truths from heaven just wash right over us with no effect because we're interested, more interested, and more zealous in other things of the world. It's just like you set the thermostat for my comfort zone and that's it. And you stay there. You keep it at that temperature. It's like, don't put me in, coach. I'm fine on the bench. I'm comfortable. I've, I've made a great life here on the bench. That's the church climate that Jesus is addressing. Another observation here is that Jesus doesn't respond like we might think. I mean, he's talking about spitting them out of his mouth. That's pretty harsh. And you might expect him to, he's going to take them to the woodshed and discipline them greatly and send them to their rooms and so forth. But he says, I discipline those I love. I'm, I'm speaking to you in this way only because I have a deepest love for you. You have no zeal for me. I'm passionate for you. I care for you. I care about your well-being. I care about your spiritual status. And so all that I've written to you and, and the way I've, I, I've assessed you it's because I love you. I'm not kicking you out. I'm not sending you to your room. I want you to repent. Though you make my stomach turn, my heart is still turned towards you. I remember um, in this church when the water fountain downstairs was out of order for a while. And it didn't get cold. And so the water just like sat in it People weren't using it much. Just sat there and sat there. And one time I went down to get a drink of nice cold water. And it was yuck. Spit it back out. That's what we're talking here. And for that reason, people kind of just stopped using it. Why even use a water fountain that the whole purpose is to be refreshed by it? 
So you get the idea, I think, here that Jesus is thirsty for his churches to be zealous for him. When he looks upon us, he wants to find a zeal. He wants to see desire. He wants to see a longing and a love for who he is and what he's about. That's refreshing to him. And it's not asking too much. It's, it's really an expectation that we should have. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. When God gives Himself to us in the way that He does, fully given to us, holding nothing back, though we deserve not an ounce of it. It just begs for some kind of response. And to not respond to that kind of love and care is, is, is just unthinkable. It doesn't make any sense that there would be no response when Jesus thirsts for this. We should be enamored with this God that would extend such grace when we can chronicle such sinfulness in our own lives. So I have to ask, if Christ were... And He does as Christ looks down at our hearts and our church and our services and the way we conduct ourselves, whether we're here or out on the street or in our towns or in home or work. What does He see? What does He find? What kind of believers are we? And what kind of church are we? And we, we can say amen to each other and agree with certain things and encourage each other in certain ways, but what does Christ the Lord think about us and the way we do our service? What does He think about us? What does He see as His Word goes forth? What does He see as the songs of praise go forth where we have official times where we are supposed to be praising the Lord? Is that what we do? Because He he thirsts for that. It refreshes Him for us to worship and praise Him with all of our heart, with all of our love, give Him all of our being or strive to do that. And so, just have to ask Are we dormant? Where is our thermostat setting in our spiritual condition? And then lastly, we see the remedy. So if the root problem is that the Laodiceans have have, have just found this comfort zone that is really more about them than about God, and they set the thermostat there, it's it's the perfect uh, comfortable It's the perfect temperature for apparently worldly living, worldly desires, instead of heavenly desires. To live for Christ, there actually should be something uncomfortable about it, because it goes against the culture. They didn't have the water in Laodicea. That was a big deal, but they had a lot of things. And we see this in Christ's description of them. They had fancy clothes. Laodicea was renowned for making a certain fabric because they had black sheep in which they could make this fabric from. And if you had clothes, it was like something that people would notice about you because of the shine it had to it. Very attractive. So they were known for the clothing industry. They had money. They were extremely, extremely wealthy, this city. 
Now, the Lycus Valley, you will know, is also prone to earthquakes. And in 60 AD, they had an earthquake that devastated this city. Now, you know what happens when you have natural disasters, even in our country. You send out FEMA because the poor city or town's been wiped out. They don't have enough money to rebuild. I mean, who has enough money to where we just lost everything? We need help. So the government comes in and the, and the government helps and gives them a leg up to rebuild. Well, the Romans would do this as well. If a city benefited to them in, in, in any kind of way, they would put their money and their wealth towards it. Hey, we'll help you rebuild your city. You are instrumental to the, the means and the goodness of well-being of our empire. Well, Laodicea was so wealthy that when they were destroyed and Rome reached out to them to help them build their city, they said, uh, no thanks. We got this. We actually do have enough money to rebuild our own city. And they prided themselves on this. D.A. Carson says, um, they actually wrote to the governor and said, we don't need your help, thank you. You can find little plaques that say, This was rebuilt at our own expense. They were proud of it. They were filthy rich. We got this. We can handle it. And the church was rich. And that attitude of we got this, we can handle it, crept in. We don't need anybody's help. And that attitude of self-sufficiency, when you can provide all of your own needs, why even ask God for anything And that habit of self-sufficiency creeps in because they were so blessed with wealth. They forgot their need for God. They didn't know how poor they were. Another thing Laodicea had going for it was that they had this uh, ophthalmic center here where they treated eye infections. Eye infections, I found out in my studies for this passage, were very common in, in uh, that day because it was dusty and their uh, fecal matter would get in the dust and blow into people's eyes because all the livestock there. And so there would be an infection, nasty, nasty infections that could cause people to go blind. I'm guessing it's kind of like pink eye. I mean, it would be uh, pussy and everything else. That, I don't want to go any farther to describe how gross it would be. And they had this remedy there. They were known for it. People would come and they could sell this remedy that would take care of this infection. It was like a poultice of some kind. It would get the poison out of the eye so that people could see again. So that's the things that they were known for, the things that they had in abundance. Now listen to what Jesus says to them in 17. You say I'm rich. I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He just covered all the things that they're great in, all the things that they're known for, all the things they do well. People come to them for this reason, and he's saying, you don't have that in a spiritual sense. You have that in a worldly sense. You have just the opposite in a spiritual sense. You're spiritually impoverished. Your riches has, have made you poor. Poor to the things of God. You don't see them anymore. You don't depend on them anymore. You don't need to trust in them anymore because you think you have all the dots covered and all your bases covered. But you have no purchasing power. Your spiritual bank account is empty. 
Apart from the Holy Spirit, you're blind. You can't see anything without. See, they have all this thing from the all these things from the world, but the things that you can't get from the world that only come from God, they don't have. Now, that's a dangerous place to be for a church. All the impressive things. He says they're naked. Now, symbolically in Scripture, that means your shame is exposed. Your guilt's exposed. Everybody can see it from a heaven's perspective. Those black shiny clothes are not helping you. So all of this is not benefiting them in the way that churches should be benefited. They got sucked into a cultural attitude of self-sufficiency. They went with the flow of their culture. If we go with the flow of our culture today, and I love America, but if we go with the flow of America has its faults, America's not the church. And if we just go with the flow of it, we have to be careful even about prosperity. Because prosperity can give us a false sense of assurance and being cared for. And when it comes to the things of God, we have nothing because we thought we had everything. I read an article, I don't know who to credit, credit it to, I read it a while ago. But I read an article about what do other Christians from other nations think about Americans. And it's hard to get information because if they're good Christians, they're polite and they're not going to tell you what they think. Like, you know, you have a meal at somebody's house and it was terrible, but you're not going to tell them. So this was very um, revealing, I think. Other Christians around the world that are on fire for Christ, they come to America and said they're appalled by our lukewarmness. And they know that it's directly linked to our self-sufficiency. These are countries that don't have what we have. It's a different culture. They're doing their Christianity in a different way. He said they're, they're appalled that we hardly pray. At least compared to them. That they're appalled at how much money we spend on ourselves instead of giving it away. They, they don't understand it. They read their Bibles and they get this out of it. And they come to America and they see how much we spend on ourselves. And says that they are appalled at how afraid we are to share Christ at the office when they do it. And they may be literally beaten just for sharing Christ or put to death just for sharing Christ. And we're scared to share Christ with people that we work with or live beside. They could go to jail for it. I think this is wonderful because it, it's, it's, a, it's a loving tap. It's a loving tap from other Christians in different nations saying, America, church in America, be careful. Because you you're only gauging yourselves with, with yourselves. And not by what God is doing and how God is... And, and the, a, a, a restored life and the power of God is being lived out in other people and other churches and other ways under different circumstances. Be careful. Because with all you have, you may have nothing. So, to close, here's what Jesus says. He gives them advice. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may be rich. White garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. 
Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So there's the advice in this. We find the remedy. We break, the, break this down very quickly. By my gold is representative of, if you're golden before the Lord, you're full of grace. You're valuable to Him because His grace has been applied in your life. The only way that we can be pleasing to God is if we possess God's grace. We can't do it in our works. They do not oppress Him. So we need the grace of God, which is golden, if you will, the saving grace of God. Second, he says, buy the, the, the white raiment. What you have just exposes your guilt and shame. What you need is you need to be covered You need to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. Robed with the works of Christ because yours only condemn you. And third, the salve. By my salve because your lukewarmness, you're blinded to the things of the Spirit and the things of the kingdom of heaven. Let me open your eyes to who I am and what I'm doing and how I can change you and how I can change the world. Open your eyes to God's love. That rebuke is a rebuke in love. And open your eyes to fellowship. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Isn't that an interesting way for Jesus to appeal to them? Because in that culture, when you invited somebody into your house, it was a very intimate, personable thing. It was like you, a relationship. You shared the privacy of your home. You shared the privacy of your life. And so Jesus is saying, let me in. He's not asking for a business transaction. He's not asking for us to, oh, I can check this off my list. Let me into your life. I'm right here and I'm standing on the door and I'm knocking. Even though you're lukewarm to me, I want a relationship with you because I can change that. When you avail yourself to me. Let's visit. Let's talk. Share everything. I want to hear it all. That's how relational God is, and He desires that for us. And then lastly, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is sitting on the throne. He's on top of the world. Why and how? Because He earned it. Because He conquered it. He conquered the enemies of all that is right and good. He's he's submitting and subjecting the enemies of God under His footstool. That's what Jesus is accomplishing even right now as I speak. It started when He walked out of the tomb. Victory over sin and death. And He will bring it all into subjection. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It tells us what's going to happen and how He's going to do it and how He will conquer His enemies. Theoretically, they're already conquered. He won the battle. It's just the final skirmishes that need to be taken care of. He earned it. Why would we reign and rule with Him? Why would He invite us up into His seat? Because He gained it for us. And He's a gracious, generous God. And the things that we conquer, we conquer because He grants us the power, the staying power, the faithfulness, the overcoming, the conquering power to do so. Let me close 
with another quote from <clears throat> Timothy Keller. You know why you can <clears throat> excuse me, get a white robe? Because he was stripped naked on the cross. You know why you can have his spiritual wealth? Because he was absolutely impoverished. Do you know why you can have sight? Why you no longer have to be blind? Because as they were crucifying him, they put a blindfold on him and they pounded his face and they said, prophesy who hit you. He was stripped so you could be clothed. He was impoverished so you could be rich. He was blinded so you could see. He was jealous for you because he was jealous for you because he set his love on you intensely. It was an explosion of service on our behalf but it was a cosmic service that changed the world. That's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to, to sit here and read the words of Christ that I am knocking on the door of your heart. And I want to come in and, and do life with you. I want to give myself with you, counsel you, advise you, help you come alongside you, set you free from your sins, set you free from deception and things that you've believed your whole lives. What are we going to do with that knock that is there for us? May God give us the grace this morning as individuals, and may God give us the grace this morning as a church to go to that thermostat and to crank it up, to crank up our joy and our zeal for the glory of God, because that's why we exist. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.